0: Welcome to the Quiet Quitting episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, and frankly, I'm just phoning this one in this week. Emily, how are you? This is Emily Beck of (laughs) Axios.
1: Hello. I've been preparing all week for this, not like Felix.
0: (laughs) Elizabeth Spires, how are you approaching your Slate Money duties?
2: Should you be quiet fired?
0: Yeah, I should, I should probably be quiet Quiet, if I had. We're going to talk about quiet quitting. We're going to do a Labor Day episode of Slate Money this week. We're going to talk about the big problems in the labor force, how basically there aren't enough people to do all of the jobs available and what the reasons for that are. We're going to talk about quiet quitting. We're going to talk about fast food workers in California and whether California is turning German. And I have to say, this is a really good week to become a Slate Plus member because we have... Stacey Marie Ishmael back on the show to answer questions about Michael Saylor in Slate+. Plus. So all of that is coming up on Slate Money.
2: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
0: Okay, so let's start with the big picture of the labor market, which is expanding according to the latest jobs report, but really still not nearly big enough to account for the sheer number of jobs available. And this is Labor Day. So let's just run down the list of reasons why there aren't enough people to fill the jobs available. Emily, you had a piece on Friday about childcare, which is a major component of this, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of reasons. There is a big labor shortage in the United States. We should first say one reason that is not included in my list is that people are lazy. That is not why there is a labor shortage in the United States. Although I hear it from a lot of people recently, older people telling me, what is wrong with these kids? They don't want to work. That's not the reason. (laughs) (laughs) The reason there aren't enough workers to fill all the jobs The reason is, first of all, a lot of people have long COVID and they can't work. Another reason is immigration basically ground to a halt. So there are not the usual immigrant labor force to take the jobs that Americans typically don't want. Another reason is a lot of old people in the pandemic were like, hey, I don't want to die working some dumb job. I'm going to retire. And they didn't come back. So labor force participation for older workers is really, really down. And then a final reason And one that I look at a lot is childcare, which is sort of like the nexus of a lot of things because no one wants to work in childcare anymore because the pay is very low. Childcare outlets haven't been able to give the kind of raises that you're seeing in like fast food or at the CVS or something. You know, the wages are still really low. So childcare workers are like, you know what, I'd rather work at Sheets and get a hiring bonus and get $16 an hour. So that is a spiral, not enough childcare workers, not enough slots for working parents to send their kids off to childcare. So that's like another reason that there's not of So lot I
0: want to workers. stick with this childcare for a minute and then we'll move on to some of the others. But explain to me what the mechanism is. Why is it that uniquely among American industries and especially industries paying hourly wages, that childcare is not able to raise its wages? I mean, why sh- can't they raise their costs and prices and wages like everyone else in this inflationary economy.
1: Right. So childcare is a private industry that kind of operates as a public industry. So it's really price constrained. Parents can only spend so much. So these childcare places keep their prices really low. I mean there's some high-end ones that have more flexibility, but prices are very low. Parents only have so much money to spend. So if they so, so the reason much.
0: i mean i feel like parents only have so much money to spend on everything right they don't have only have so much money to spend on burgers and petrol and everything else that has been going up in price and mm-hmm. the child care is you know one of those necessities and if it goes up in price you're like well that's terrible but i need child care i still don't entirely understand why childcare in particular has this extreme inelasticity of demand, where presumably what you're saying is, if they raise prices by 5%, then people just stop sending their kids to childcare in a way that other things where prices go up 5%, people just pay 5% more.
1: Yeah, because well, first, I mean, people are spending like 1000s of dollars, a lot, some people 1000s, they're pressed to the limit. And instead of just giving in and paying more money, at some point you make a choice and you say, okay, well, mom, all her money that she makes goes to childcare. So mom might as well do the childcare. So it's like, that's the the fallback. And that's why labor force participation is kind of tied to childcare. Because people aren't like, I have to pay more for gas. Like I have no choice. At some point they're like, well... Mom will do it, or like, I'll grandma retired because she was afraid of getting COVID. So we'll just ship the kids to grandma. You know, it's like a little Uh, more. Don't you
2: think also there's a little bit of a COVID hangover effect here where a lot of people had to drop out of the labor force in order to become caretakers for all of these reasons? When daycares were closed, when schools were closed, you know, there were a lot of working parents who had to do something with their kids, and some of them just might not be coming back.
1: Yeah, but it's more of um, a supply than a demand issue from the providers. I'm talking to and the people in the industry are saying there aren't enough workers and they're turning parents away so yeah maybe some people had alternate arrangements but more likely there's just not enough slots
0: like for me you know as a good capitalist who understands economics 101 like the first thing i hear when someone says there aren't enough workers and we're turning parents away the you know what that says to me in my ears is our product is underpriced. If they raise their prices, that would, number one, allow them to pay more, and number two, prevent this problem of turning parents away. But clearly, there is a mechanism there. And one of the, and I think there are a couple of things going on. Number one is that people generally undervalue the value of their own time. So you see this quite often when people are like lining up for an hour to get a, you know, sandwich at the halal cart or whatever, right? Like, people don't think that their time is worth as much as it is. And so when they look at childcare on a sort of hourly basis, they think, my time is worth less than $50 an hour or whatever, so I am going to just do it myself. And that kind of request from the childcare people to pay a relatively what seems like a high hourly rate just feels to people like, they might as well do it themselves, even if their own time is actually worth more than that.
1: I think that's really smart. And people undervalue the worth of childcare as well, like on the flip side, because it's something women do for free.
0: Right. And then I think, to Elizabeth's point, there is a kind of path dependence here, and that once you are in that mode of having, quote-unquote, free childcare, because people don't think of opportunity costs as actual costs, then... It becomes that much of an extra hump to jump over when you start thinking about, well, maybe I should start paying that again. Although I do also think the other big thing here is the classic problem of small businesses in general, and nearly all childcare businesses are small businesses, are much more reluctant to raise prices than big businesses. And they think that their customers are more price-sensitive than, in fact, they are. And at Axios, we had a really interesting story about a woman in uh, Southwest Harbor in Maine who had a pie store, and she shut down her pie store because she didn't want to raise the price of her pies. And this is a very rich neighborhood. You know, the houses in her neighborhood go for $3 million, and she was like, well, I can't raise the price of my pie from $25 to $30 because no one's going to pay it. It wasn't honestly that no one would pay it. It was that she just didn't think that people would pay it Mm. and she didn't want to tell her customers the price of the pie has gone up. You know, there's a kind of psychological obstacle to someone raising prices and talking to their customers that someone who works for a big business you know someone like you know someone behind the cashier who doesn't own the business if they just ring someone up and say the price has gone up i have nothing to do with it you can't blame me the customer understands they can't blame the cashier if it's the owner who's behind the cashier then the owner starts feeling guilty and when the customer says why has the price gone up they feel like oh my god this is so bad my customers can't afford it
1: yeah that's interesting and i think it's also what i was saying at the outset that I think operators think of themselves as doing like a public good. Like it's not public school. It's private school, right? Kind of child care right. is. But everyone kind of thinks of it as a public good. And I think that's also a reason that owners might want to keep the price low. They feel like this is something that everyone should be able to afford. Everyone who advocates for child care is always talking about affordability. And obviously that is quite important.
0: I want to talk about the immigration thing too, because the numbers are really quite astonishing obviously at the beginning of the pandemic when the borders were closed and America wasn't letting anyone in everything dropped right and so the total amount of immigration to the United States and I'm talking here about like work visas but t- temporary work visas they're not and we have to be technical here they're not immigrant visas as in you're not allowed to just live in America and work in America forever. They always have some kind of, you know, they're one year or three years or five years or however long they last. But they're temporary work visas and there's a whole slew of them and they all have different numbers like E's and L's and H's and O's. And those fell substantially in 2020 for reasons that we can all understand. What really surprised me is that the number of those visas that were issued in 2021 was even lower than in 2020. It's not coming back. And it's so low now that I'm pretty sure that the net number of people in America working on those visas is actually declining, that we that the immigration problem is not just failing to ameliorate the labor force problem, it's actually exacerbating the labor force problem because all of those people who had those visas, which were temporary visas, you know, in the past, those visas are expiring faster than the new ones are being issued. And honestly, I blame the State Department for this. You know, and we've talked about this on the show in the past. In India, it can take 500 days now to get an appointment for a visa. The State Department just doesn't have the capacity to issue these visas, and some, it, somehow it just got broken first during the trump years and second during the pandemic and it hasn't been able to catch up and we're just not issuing nearly as many visas not only as we were but as we have to
2: yeah i think part of it is that trump failed to fully staff the government and attenuated the state department by doing that and it wasn't it's not easy when you have an agency that's operating at you know much lower capacity to just Hire people and get it back to where it was. I think. It's although I mean, a I
0: have to say, just looking at the numbers, the the number of the total number of these visas that I'm talking about kept on rising pretty steadily through 2017, 2018, 2019. So it's not obviously, you know, Rex Tillerson decided to hollow out the State Department or whatever. You know, I don't think you can easily blame Trump for this. Although I, I think there's a sense in which once it's broken, it becomes harder to build back. And obviously, it was the pandemic that broke it,
1: Felix. Aside from the visas and the data you looked at, are there other missing immigrants from the workforce that are harder to chart? Do you know?
0: No, everything is chartable. The State Department has like extremely well, it's not everything is chartable. The State Department has very granular detail, like literally month by month on, on visa issuance. So you can definitely look at visa issuance. You can look at the number of green cards that are being issued as well. The only thing you can't look at. Is how many visas are expiring and Mm. what happens to those workers? So, some people, these are, remember, non immigrant visas. So, you can't just automatically switch from an H 1B to a green card. So, you know, but people find ways of doing it. Like I did that, right? I had an H 1B while I was on an H 1B. I I think it was technically, actually, it's while I was on an I visa. I got married to an American citizen. She then sponsored me for a green card, and then I transferred seamlessly. Mm. Well, I say seamlessly. It was a very long and painful process, but I wound up transferring from the I-Visa to a green card, and I never left the country, and I never stopped working. So that happens to some non-immigrants. But a lot of the non-immigrants just leave the country and go back home because, they don't, because they're out of status, and they don't have permission to work here anymore. And that number is very hard to find.
1: I guess my question here is how much does politics hold back the reintroduction of more immigrants into the workforce? If I'm in the Biden administration, I'd be like, we have this like worker shortage and wouldn't it be great if we could you know, get more immigrants over here and let's work on that. And let's make that a priority of the administration to get more people into the country to work. But like the politics is so crazy around immigration that like doing that would be a terrible idea, I would imagine, because people are so panicked by immigrants. See, like, AKA Donald Trump and his people.
0: Yeah, they're, they're really, it it does seem to be one of those things a little bit like the China tariffs or just trade agreements in general mm-hmm. where the sort of you know what we like coastal elite economics podcast types would think it is completely obvious you know there's yeah. a labor shortage so you import labor you know it's just basically un- unacceptable now to both sides of the american political <sighs> spectrum and okay. that kind of centrist technocratic solution just becomes less and less Plausible.
2: Yeah, part of this too is just that, you know, whenever you successfully frame something negatively to a huge portion of the population, it's very hard to roll that back. I mean, and you don't just see that with immigration where immigrants are, you know, being portrayed as, you know, not contributing to the economy or mooching off of public services or whatever else Republicans, you know, needed to put – on but, but, as I say, it's not policy. just
0: Republicans. Like the Democrats are really, like, playing along with this. I, I don't want to frame this as, like, Republicans have caused this problem, because I don't think they really did.
2: There's not a total line between what, you know, Republicans, mainstream Republicans believe and what some centrist Democrats believe. And when you introduce a kind of negative framing in situations like these, it's very hard to get it back to positive territory. I mean, you see that also with other issues like vaccination. Such a good point, Elizabeth.
0: I can see what you're saying there, Elizabeth, in in principle. But the fact is that the sort of gut-level negative framing of more immigrants is bad, we're full up, there aren't enough jobs for all of us, last thing we need is more immigration, that's as old as the country right there has literally never been a time when america was pro immigration and even in 1965 when the immigration act was passed and that caused a massive increase in immigration from like non-white countries that wasn't popular either it's never been popular
2: well sure but i'm not talking about popularity i'm i'm saying negative sentiment toward immigration went up you know it skyrocketed during the trump administration so even if there's always been you know, a a generally ambivalent or somewhat negative view toward immigration, if it got much worse during the last administration, it's hard to, you know, find ways to mitigate that. And I think you're correct that the administration should be, you know, coming out and saying, if you are unhappy about the labor shortage, then let's talk about solutions. And one of them is welcoming immigrants back into the country and creating a non-hostile environment for them. It's also a solution to
1: inflation because a lack of workers drives up prices for labor. And if you add more workers, prices for labor.
0: The labor force shortage is an absolutely central part of, can we say it, Emily? Inflation. It's the (laughs) (laughs)
1: inflation.
0: So let's import more labor and let's encourage childcare centers to raise their prices a bit so that we can. Attract more people into the childcare industry which is desperately needed.
1: We're going to end it there, right? I can't yeah. say. The government needs to subsidize it because it's a public <laughs> good.
0: <laughs> this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% What is going on? Why is my inbox filled with people talking about quiet quitting, why it's happening, why it's not happening,
2: why it's actually quiet firing that's happening and why blah 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 what is the deal? Because there's there's <laughs> an entire cottage industry of observing a fairly banal thing that's happening in the world and declaring it a new trend. But the idea behind quiet quitting is pretty simple. It's basically the idea that you know a lot of people are burned out because of the pandemic and you know changing attitudes about work generally. And so they've decided that they're going to do the sort of bare minimum that they're required to. You know, they're going to leave at five o'clock. They're going to set boundaries with their employers. And the controversy here is, you know, are those people being lazy? What do they owe their companies? I'm of the view that you know, newsletter writer named Ed Zitron, who talks a lot about remote work generally, made a good point that the framing is really kind of hostile to workers because it suggests that people who do their work have somehow quit their job. And it sort of frames workers as villains for doing the basic requirements of their job.
0: But, but also, the, it is true that people who aren't doing their work, finding it easier to avoid getting fired in this labor market, right? No one wants to fire anyone. And it's always been possible. So Emily and I did a wonderful episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies with Cardiff Cardiff Garcia, Garcia about office space, right? And... You know, there's a lot of people in that movie, which came out in 1999, long before people were talking about, long before TikTok and people were talking about quiet quitting, where they basically did no work all day, right? And you just kind of clock in and out of work in some terrible cubicle farm somewhere, and no one really ever seems to achieve anything. You know, this is a tale as old as time. And we, you can frame the quiet quitting debate as, you know, employers aren't happy with people doing their job, or you can frame it as some people are just not doing their job and have managed to game the system to ensure that even though they're not doing their job, they're not getting fired.
2: Yeah. While I was reading about this, I I came across there was a piece in Harvard Business Review by two researchers who tried to quantify the extent to which quiet quitting is the fault of the employees or bad managers. And their sort of way of explaining it was they had a term called discretionary effort to describe the amount of effort you make above and beyond the basic requirements of your job. And they used data from employer reviews of managers to determine whether the managers were effective or not effective. And for least effective managers, 14% of their staffs were quietly quitting and 20% were willing to make extra effort above and beyond the basic requirements of their job. And for people who are considered effective managers, 62% of their employees were willing to make extra effort for their job and only 3% were quiet quitting. All -hmm. of which suggests that this is not really a problem with employees, it's a problem with shitty managers.
0: Which make doesn't make it's it any bad. less of a problem, right? I mean, there are. This is America, God. I we have a lot of shitty managers in this country. <laughs> like this is that's the American way. You work with bad bosses. Like this is something that is happening, and there's no magic wand that can be waved to make all of the bad bosses into good bosses.
2: Oh sure, I worked for Jared Kushner, right? I know what that's <laughs> like. But I, I guess the question is: Is this really a problem? Then the quiet quitting.
0: Well, I mean, I think if. Quiet even if quiet quitting is just a sort of manifestation of the bigger problem of bad middle managers that's still a bigger problem and again like what happens if you, in a situation like now where you have an extremely tight labor market is that you know maybe up until now there has been so many people wanting work that bad managers have been able to get away with being bad managers. But now that the labor market is so tight, bad managers basically can't get away with it. And where they wind up with many more people quiet quitting, because those people know they're not going to get fired. And I'm constitutionally skeptical about the degree to which management is a Quasi science that can be taught at places like Harvard Business School. But I do think that on some level, America does need to improve the quality of its managerial class.
1: I would say quiet quitting, (laughs) saying it is weird, is a problem beyond (laughs) good bad managers. It's a problem with job structure in the US and job requirements. Because if it's a problem for someone to come in at nine and do their job—not what Felix is talking about, like kind of slacking—but to come in do their job and leave at five, and that's like a problem, and they actually need to be working longer hours to get all the work. Required of them done or to succeed in the role. That's a problem with the way the role is structured. Like, there was a whole issue during the Obama administration. They wanted to change the rules about who can and can't be paid hourly and who can and can't be considered a manager because all these like managers at retail outlets were getting paid a salary. And we then working insane hours, right, and wind up making less than the hourly workers beneath them because they were in jobs with a title manager, but where they just abused you and were overworked. You know what I mean? So and I think for a long time when there wasn't a labor shortage and when wages were stagnant, people created jobs with unrealistic expectations or with realistic expectations that people would work more hours than they technically were supposed to. We've all held those jobs Maybe we still do. Also, people, (laughs) a
2: lot of people conflate FaceTime with productivity. And Mm. I think the pandemic sort of taught everybody that those two things are not synonymous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I worked for the city of New York in the 90s in the Parks Department. And I don't know if this is related, but I wrote it down to tell the story. In the Parks Department, there were like people that were like me were mostly white graduates of like relatively fancy colleges that like the Giuliani administration was really into because he was the mayor. Then there was a whole bureaucratic like civil service, also mostly black, that also worked there. And it was really interesting to see the different work ethics between the two because the civil service people, they just put in the nine to five. They were basically like quiet quitting pioneers to my mind. And then all like the dopey young, like privileged white kids were working. They were doing FaceTime. I actually didn't do FaceTime and I got passed over for a promotion and they were like, you always leave a five. And I was like, yeah, there's nothing to do. What do you, there was no internet even. Anyway, it seems like the civil servants had the right idea. And now, like the people talking about quiet quitting are the same people that in the city job that I was in in the 90s would have been like working and doing the FaceTime. And they've suddenly like come to their senses or something.
0: I want to take this opportunity <laughs> to plug. Uh episode of Slate Money that some listeners might not have listened to. And if you haven't, go back and listen to the episode we did where we had Daniel Markowitz on, because it's one of my favorite episodes of all time. And he is unbelievably good at this whole phenomenon of graduates of elite universities working incredibly hard and much harder than virtually anyone else in the population even though they're already very rich and they have all of the privilege and why would you think they need to work so hard it's such a good conversation and yeah and i think that it is precisely those graduates of elite universities who expect people to work very hard because that's what they did who are complaining the loudest about Quiet quitters.
2: Yes, it is those people. The CEOs It's also and it's the it's really people. <laughs> it's always been uh, really bad in startups, I think, because you have a lot of first-time entrepreneurs who assume that their employees have the same incentives that they do to work around the clock, and you know, and, and I think that's part of what created this kind of hustle culture that is still, I think, venerated in the Valley, but people are becoming disillusioned with elsewhere.
0: I want to just have a personal anecdote as well because hey it's my podcast why not yeah (laughs) which is i spent three months in ireland at the beginning of this year writing a book and i gave myself this quota of like i need to write a thousand words a day and i tried to structure my time a little bit and i would try these like pomodoros they're called where you sit down and just work uninterrupted for 25 minutes and it's amazing how few Pomodoros you need to be able to write a thousand words. You know, it's really not that many. It's maybe like two or three. But even just having, even just being able to do that, just write writing for an hour a day or maybe two hours a day, turned out to be incredibly difficult. And that kind of unstructured time and what seems like laziness and playing video games or whatever or just like lying in bed sort of daydreaming is actually incredibly important and you can't do the hard work without a bunch of not doing hard work around it and that experience really helped me understand that what reads as laziness even to people themselves is often a very necessary part of doing a job.
1: Yeah, 100%. As for knowledge workers, especially. I think about that a lot because I'll feel like I'm being so lazy, but you can't just work 12 hours. Right? It's not possible. Right? Right, Elizabeth? Elizabeth doesn't work 12 hours a day.
2: I, <laughs> I mean, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I work more than 40 hours a week, but I don't have the energy anymore. I, I'm middle-aged and my brain is foggy. I don't
0: even know how you count it. I, I feel like Trying to work out how many hours are you working? Like the sleeping is necessary to the work. Do I count the sleep as part of how I'm working? You know, it's, Ariana it's, Huffington yeah. says yes. Yeah, listen to Ariana. <laughs> but Emily, let's stay on the, the hourly wage workers because you have a great story about fast food workers in California.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in California, fast food jobs could become like legit good-paying jobs if this bill is actually signed by Governor Gavin Newsom. And it's not clear if he's going to sign it. So what the bill does, it's called the FAST Act or the Fast Food Accountability and Standards Act. It would establish—God, this is so boring and wonky. It would establish a council of 10 people, and it would be— Which, by the
0: way, the only thing I can imagine when I hear this is— California is becoming Germany, basically. This is the most German thing I've ever (laughs) heard in my life.
1: Yeah, so it's a council. It'll have equal representation from the fast food industry and fast food workers. And then I'll have a few government appointees to round it out. And they get to establish a minimum wage for the fast food industry of as high as $22 an hour. Dun, dun, dun. Like a real wage, although it's California.
0: But but the point is, it's set by the council. Like It is people, set by think, the council uh,
1: for the whole industry.
0: People are glomming onto the hourly wage, you know, in much the same way that people are glomming onto the potential cost of coming into Manhattan for, you know, congestion pricing. Let's separate these two issues, right? Okay. The first issue is like, is it a good idea to set up a council? And then the second issue is, like, once the council is set up, what kind of wage are they going to agree upon as being a sensible wage for the industry? And I'm optimistic that if the council is set up, they will agree upon $22-ish being a sensible wage. But the point is that that would be decided by the council and then rather than having all of these fast food restaurants like competing with each other for labor and complaining about how there's not enough labor suddenly it becomes an industry that people want to come work for because they know that it's good wages and they can get those good wages in any restaurant and yeah how is this a bad thing
1: okay so obviously for all of us who support workers getting paid decent wages and having health and safety standards that don't kill them or blah 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 get them sick and make them die it's me, very good thing. So, But I'll tell you what the guy from the Franchise Trade Association told me about why it's a bad thing. Because business and McDonald's, they're fighting really hard against this. They don't like that it's just the fast food industry and not any other industry. They think that's unfair. The council would oversee any outlet that has a 100 or more stores, restaurants in the state. So that sounds like big business, but the franchise people argue like if you are a franchise owner and you only have two McDonald's, you would still be subject to the council's minimum standards, but you're like technically a small business owner. So they don't like it for those reasons, that's what they say. And then they say like, you know, it'll force us to raise the price of burgers. It'll force us to automate more.
0: Like, I'm all in favor of raising the price of burgers and automating more.
1: Right, and people won't own as many McDonald's or whatever anymore. And I'm like, so, so, so. I'm, I'm also
0: all in favor <laughs> of there being fewer McDonald's. So like, maybe I'm the bad person to talk to. We'll have Jordan Weissman writing in saying, how dare you want fewer McDonald's? McDonald's Yeah, great. it
1: made me kind of wonder like about the franchise model, like bigger picture like if they can't pay people living wages and the owners are small business owners under the umbrella of big business it just seems like kind of problematic all around so to me that none of that is an issue like maybe it'll lead to some kind of restructuring in the industry as a whole which maybe is okay i
0: i do think that underneath all of these problems is this feeling that if the government sides with the workers then between them they have a majority on the council and they can push through whatever they like against the objections of the employers and so rather than this being like a collaborative council where they all come together and agree on something it becomes this place where the employers constantly get outvoted and have no real say in how to run their own business nor how much to pay their own employees and i think that's uh Genuine worry. And I think there are ways to structure the council such that, you know, that should probably try and address that worry somehow. I think that's a legitimate worry. But I think also that there, there must be a way of fixing that problem.
2: I had to just an data. I don't think that the, you know, the franchise owners are unaware that wages are too low. When I was in Alabama to see family a couple of weeks ago, the Local McDonald's had signs up in the window that said, you know, wages are now $17 an hour. And then there was a sign right next to it that said, by the way, this is the industry wage. And I haven't seen, I think this feels like a post-pandemic thing. You have people articulating exactly what they're paying per hour in signs in the you know front of the store
0: I'm super interested in this like when that sign saying this is the industry wage why are they putting that sign up what message are they trying to send with that sign Well
2: they're saying the 12 dollars is the industry average I guess and I don't know what the source for that
0: is Oh you mean that the 17 is they're saying when you say this oh I, they had a different number that was the, the industry
2: 17 wage. is high for yeah. Alabama
0: They weren't they sure. weren't saying that 17 was the yeah. industry wage No Ah, uh, yeah, no, so that makes sense. That's just them saying, come work for us because we pay more than other people. Yeah.
1: One thing about the government involvement here that a labor historian advocate pointed out to me is like, labor unions have been trying to organize fast food workers for a long time, like almost a decade. I think for 15 was started in like 2012 or something. And it really hasn't worked. And partly it's because, you know, they're all spread out and these little restaurants, turnover is really high and they haven't been able to do it and bringing the government in and making this council is a way to get labor the leverage it needs it needs the government's help otherwise these workers aren't going to have that power they need the government here goes back to what you were saying Felix that like if the government's on their side they can get this stuff but we don't know that's going to be forever
0: the kind of pathetic thing that we see about like individual Starbucks outlets, you know, voting to unionize their five employees. It's like, you're never going to get anywhere that way. It needs to be at a much higher level than that.
1: Yeah, you need someone to come in and be like, okay, enough Starbucks restaurants have done this. Like Starbucks, you need to step up and like do a contract for everyone. And that's like where government could play a role.
0: Let's have a numbers round. I think I'm going to start this week because I want to do the big picture number, which is 786 Thousand. that is the number of people that entered the labor force in August, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics that came out. Their their report came out on Friday morning. That's a really big number. And it explains why the unemployment rate went up in August. We're now up to 3.7%, which is amazing, because 3.7% is still very low, but we're up to 3.7%, because a whole bunch of those 786,000 people they haven't found jobs yet. They're like in the labor force now. They're looking for work and they haven't got jobs. And this is good. We need more of this and we'll see if this continues. But like for the time being, we're on a good trend. Elizabeth, what's your number?
2: Okay. My number is $7,000. And according to your report from the St. Louis Fed, that's the average net worth of a single mother with children. And by comparison, the average net worth of a single woman without kids is $65,000. Oh. And for single <laughs> men without kids, it's 57000 But that 7000 number is just horrifying.
1: <laughs> Elizabeth, I saw this story. There was like a story on Bloomberg that was like, Single women without children are doing really, really super, super well. And there was a picture of like a smiling lady at the top of the story who has, she says she has it all. And is this related to that headline? Maybe
2: it's single women with kids need sectoral <laughs> bargaining, frankly. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, there you go. Give them a German style counsel. <laughs> Emily, what's your number?
2: Uh, my number
1: is 76.1. It's a bummer number. That's is the that a life-
0: percentage? It feels like a percentage.
1: It's years. It's age. That is life expectancy for someone born in 2021, according to the CDC's latest numbers. It's the lowest since 1996. Biggest two-year decline in life expectancy in a century because of COVID, but also because of overdoses and uh, car accidents and stuff like that. And we know it's not a literal prediction of like how long someone born in 2021 is going to live. It's more like a barometer of like how we're doing. And the news is not that great.
0: It's not really. And it's it's actually got nothing to do with people born in 2021. But it's People who are alive right now, basically in or were alive in 2021, those people in aggregate had a life expectancy of about 76 years. Thanks, COVID. Yeah, it's bad. I think that's it for us this week. Thanks for leaving us on a bummer, Emily.
1: Uh, sorry, you're gonna probably have live to- longer. We could take bets on it. Like we could be on Slate Money when we're 80. Like, girl, we beat it.
0: We'll we'll do something <laughs> happier in this in the Slate Plus. But other than that, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing. And thanks to all of you guys for writing to us. We love the emails. SlateMoney at Slate.com. We'll be back next week with more Slate Money.